Have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmella. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. This is the Valentine's Day special. Today we are going to be covering the Francis Mary, a love story, question mark. We're also going to be looking at cannibalism in pop culture. What else could you have to do on Valentine's Day than spend it with us? doing a bit of research for this episode as we tend to do yes our google search histories are quite dangerous and we're probably on some watch lists almost certainly but when we realized we were going to do a valentine's day special what i really wanted to discover sort of randomly was that saint valentine was also the saint of cannibalism alongside beekeeping and epilepsy was Um, he Sadly not. There are connections. St Valentine is the patron saint of romance and it's a little bit racy, but one of the colloquial sayings about cannibalism is to eat someone out, as Bill Schultz writes. My mother listens to this podcast, so I'm going to stop that theme there. But, you know, there are connections between... The inherent eroticism of cannibalism. We've discussed this in our Bills and Boons sections in previous episodes. <laughs> While it turns out that St Valentine isn't the patron saint of survival cannibalism, you can always trust the Catholics to have a patron saint for everything. Well, please continue. So, in descending order of interest, in tied last place, otherwise known as third, We have Brendan the Navigator and Nicholas of Myra. For both of them, I've just written down that they were the patron saints of boat shit, which, as we know, does have some good tie-ins to cannibalism at sea. Yeah, custom of the sea. If they're related to the sea, then they must have to help people out in that situation. But, you know, that's a bit tenuous. So for second place, we have Saint Blandina, She was a French martyr. She was falsely accused of cannibalism and has become the patron saint of servant girls, torture victims and those who are falsely accused of cannibalism. That's a very specific patron saint and you wouldn't think you would need her help that often. No. And yet, I suppose that there are instances... Oh God, you know she's hanging out with Douglas Mawson because of our last episodes. (laughs) for these false accusations of cannibalism Douglas Mawson aside we're here for the real deal he was a real cannibal I stand by that (laughs) so here we have our winner this is my contender for the patron saint of Casting Lots podcast Mm -hmm. St Lawrence St Lawrence was deacon of Rome under Emperor Valerian It doesn't go too well for him. I mean, obviously, he's a patron saint. You don't get to become a patron saint if things go that well. Normally, you have to die horribly, and I assume he dies in a cannibal-related way. 
Lawrence was an all-round good guy. Bit Robin Hood. Gave his riches of the church to the poor. The Romans came round demanding that they get the gold. And Lawrence says no. Oh yeah, the Romans don't like that kind of thing. So he's placed on a burning hot gridiron or rotisserie. Lawrence is cooked to death. But as he's going out, he says, Turn me over. I'm done on this side. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he definitely said that. Which means that St. Lawrence is the patron saint of cooks, barbecues, firefighters, comedians, and strangely also, Canada. <laughs> I think he fits perfectly with the podcast. Excellent. St. Lawrence, I welcome you. 10th of August. Everyone have a barbecue for St. Lawrence, patron saint of casting lots. <laughs> so with that fun tangent on the history of Catholic saints in our which obscure Catholic saint to you, that's kind of going to set the tone for today's episode. Excellent. Good. We're going to have discussions. We're going to have fun games. Well, we'll find them fun. We're going to have fun. <laughs> Alex and Carmela, specifically. And you're along for the ride. But we are going to start in the true spirit of St. Valentine's Day with a love story. Aww. Carmela. Would you like to hear the story of the Francis Mary? I would love to. It sounds like it's going to be heartwarming and beautiful and poetic. Hearts certainly are going to be warmed. Oh! <laughs> I'm quite proud of that. That's good. That was really good. Anne Saunders is 23. She's born and raised in Liverpool. I really don't want to have to try and do a Scouse accent. It's not going to end well. She boards the fateful ship, the Francis Mary, from Liverpool Harbour. Liverpool. Liverpool. Was that? I don't even know whether that was a Liverpool accent. <laughs> but we tried. We tried. We've not recorded an episode for a while, you can tell. Yeah, my accents are just really well. You know, normally I can do a scarce accent at the drop of a hat because I'm an accent master. You but... are an accent master. Mm -hmm. It's 1825 and Anne Saunders is travelling alongside her mistress, Mrs Kendall. Mistress in... No. Ah, okay, continue. <laughs> I'm giving you a cannibalism love story. I'm afraid... I'm struggling to find an LGBT cannibalism true life love story. We'll get to it in the section on fiction later. Don't worry, guys. Mrs. Kendall is sometimes also called Mrs. Patterson because my sources just want to mess with me. <laughs> yes. It's the only reason I can think. Mrs. Kendall is the wife of Captain Kendall, the captain of the Francis Mary. So while there are passengers on board, they're the only women, Saunders and Kendall, because of this connection to the captain. Okay, right, right. But Anne isn't alone at sea. On the Francis Mary, not only are there some crew and passengers, 
and a fuck ton of timber. That's the official categorization of the amount of cargo. So just to clarify, they're transporting timber. It's not just that the boat is made of wood. Both. Both. Okay, there's a lot of wood going on. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) Fully grown adults, continue. (laughs) Tell me more about the wood. (laughs) Well, this shipment of big hard wood. (laughs) Carmella is crying. I'm a grown up, continue. Is going from England to America on a round voyage, and then they're gonna come back. Young Anne Saunders does suffer from seasickness, but she gets over that eventually. Possibly because she is actually in love. Who's she in love with, Alex? She is in love with James Fryer, the ship's cook. She has known young James since they were both 18 years old. And they have formed an indissoluble attachment to each other. They are going to be wed when the Francis Mary returns to Liverpool. Yes, they definitely, that will happen for them. I believe it. They believe it. To me, he had early made protestations of love, she later says. They're in love, they're very happy, although they do go to pains to point out, or at least Anne does, that she only agreed to wed him on the return journey. So no hanky-panky happened on the way in. They weren't even engaged on the way in. Okay, so they were just coyly smiling at each other at that point. Yeah. Cool. Definitely. Oh, totally, because that's how it was in the past, totally. The Francis Mary leaves St John's in Brunswick on the 18th of January, 1826. She has a crew of 15 with six passengers. It's a bit of a pre-honeymoon period for James and Anne. Although the Francis Mary's cargo is timber, there aren't any handy rations of cheese, chocolates, oysters or other aphrodisiacs on board. There's no cheese in this one, but... No cheese. Well, quite a lot of cheese, but not the (laughs) cheese we were going for. To begin with, all is smooth in the Atlantic, and then the weather strikes. I have semi-written this script in a bit of a Bills and Boone-esque fashion, I think you can tell. It's beautiful, I'm really enjoying it. The prose is so purple, it's like I've asphyxiated it. (laughs) Also good. Again, not scripted. Oh, you're a you're on a roll. I'm on, on fire roll. today. Like the Cross Patrick. <laughs> Stop with the stupid cannibalism in jokes. <laughs> <laughs> on the first of February, a storm rages over the Francis Mary. Gale force winds snap all three of her masts, tear away her rudder, rip away the ship's galley from deck, throws the small boat into the water and injures five sailors. That is a lot of the ship that is overboard or damaged. The Francis Mary is a sitting duck. Or a turtle. Or a turtle. Pause for effect. She's demasted, unable to navigate, floundering in a still deadly storm. She has limited food, limited shelter. And the storm continues. Limited food? You did just say there were five dead bodies. 
No, they're injured. They're oh. only injured. <laughs> I'm just thinking ahead. Stop rushing ahead. <laughs> so the storm continues. Now all of the longboats get washed overboard. They didn't tie them down after the first one went. Nah, they were like, it'll be fine. <laughs> Lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place. Exactly. Her anchor is also torn off. I am running out of parts of a ship that I can name that haven't been lost. I've got one. The stern. The stern gets a hole punched into her. Oh no. This is where all of the provisions are stored. Where now there's a lot of the sea inside the ship. So they can float nicely out. They can float nicely out. They can be corrupted by salt water. Mm. They try and get the necessary provisions to the upper decks, but there's just not enough food. A lot of timber, but not enough food. And crucially, Frances Mary, she isn't going to sink. She's also not going to be steered. So she's just going to sort of sit there. Bob about. Hope is on the horizon, though. Even through the storm... An American vessel is spotted, and allegedly another ship makes contact with the ravaged Francis Mary. Oh, all good then. Happy ever after. Both of them, to quote, offered no assistance. Thank you for that, American vessels. Very useful. Bit of a dick move. And fair, there's no obligation to assist if it puts you or your vessel in danger, but... Don't go over and talk to them <laughs> and then be like, yeah, sucks to be you, doesn't it? It's like the crossing over the road, but like you're crossing over to say like, haha, and then crossing back. Yeah, just look the other way. Pretend you've not seen them. Well, don't do that. Go and help. Yeah, go but... and help the people who are dying on the ship, maybe. The Francis Mary, her crew and passengers are thoroughly screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. Gotta have all the erotic imagery. This is where the dates start to become a little bit confusing in the story. According to some accounts, fresh food and water is exhausted by the 6th of February. So the timeline goes 1st of February, the storm starts. 5th of February, the Atlantic punches a hole in the stern. 6th of February, they run out of food. Allegedly. That's a lot of food that went through the stern then. Yes. I'm not so sure, because even though the idea that they go in one day to lose everything is a bit Medusa, they only actually get their supplies out of the hold on the 5th. And other sources say that it's the 12th that food and water runs dry, which I think is slightly more believable. Can we make sure that we choose whichever timeline means that something significant happens on Valentine's Day? Do you know what? I haven't even noticed <laughs> that this story is taking place over Valentine's Day. <laughs> well, that's why you picked it. <laughs> I picked it because it's a love story. Okay. The food ran out on the 14th. We have no evidence of that, but that is what we are going to go with for the purposes of this episode. Regardless of when the food ran out, the survivors had only had a biscuit and a half to survive on. Their water had run so low that they were rubbing seawater on their lips from want of water and were drinking urine and salt water. The two fluids that you probably shouldn't drink. Probably. Probably. I wouldn't recommend. 
I mean, there are more fluids that you shouldn't drink. We could list them, but these are the ones that see. What we do know is the first man to die dies on the 21st of February. Whether there had been any discussion of cannibalism before his death, it's unclear. But to quote, the survivors eyed each other with mournful and melancholy looks, which sort of implies something. Yeah, yeah, not just grieving, but like a sort of, hmm. Now, whether or not the cannibalism is planned, or, you know, just sort of happens naturally, that was the fate of the first body. And I'll give them that. They start on the first body. They don't go through the nonsense that ha- that nonsense of giving people a proper burial. God, yeah, I hate it when people get a proper burial in these stories. Well, it's just like, come on, take advantage of it from the off. This is the fate of the first body and all of the bodies moving forward. From Captain Kendall's log on the 21st of February, he writes that John Wilson, seaman, died at 10am. Carmella is giggling in the corner at the word seaman. I managed the whole of season one without giggling at that word, but it's the tone of the episode that we've taken. Tell me about the seaman, please. He died at 10am, preserved the body of the deceased, cut him up in quarters, washed him overboard, and hung them up on pins. The um, sweet morsels of John Wilson were issued out as rations, and this revolting food was eaten by all, including Anne and Mrs Kendall. Well, yes, women can be cannibals too. Now, it does appear that the Francis Mary might have become caught up in some other cannibalism at sea stories, because some versions say that it was early February when a sailor was discovered dead in the rigging, and that James Clark died of no other complaint than weakness caused by famine on the 12th of February. But we know from Mm. the captain's log that it was John Wilson on the 21st. So it all gets a little bit confusing. Could we say it was on the 14th? No, it's definitely on the 21st. They can run out of food on the 14th, but the 21st is a solid day in this story. Okay, fine. Stick to the facts. Let's go back to Anne Saunders. Anne Saunders sees the butchery of the body. She's the fiancé of the ship's cook. She actually takes up an active role in the survival of the ship. Oh, so her boyfriend's doing the butchery. Good, they put someone who's good at it on the job. That's fair. Now, spoilers, there are no lots cast in this story, but going through the research and looking at ship's cooks in survival cannibalism at sea cases, I was reading The Cannibal Within. They point out that when lots are cast randomly, It never seems to be the ship's cook who draws that short straw. I mean, it makes sense if you're the one doing the cooking. It does, but I wonder how many of our random allocations actually are that random. Just leaves his name out. It's not like a secret Santa. (laughs) (laughs) Anne Saunders turns to the butchery of human bodies. It's a fun couple's activity. She's got a healthy sense of self-preservation. Someone's got to do it. 
And I did come across an incredible quote regarding Anne Saunders from Amy Mitchell Cook that says, Although the food of choice was non-traditional, a middle or lower class woman was well within her boundaries processing meat. I mean, that is a very good point. She's not wrong. There is an element of class-based judgement at the story of Anne Saunders, especially the difference between Anne Saunders and Mrs Kendall. Because, of course, Anne is throwing herself into the difficult part of the narrative. Mrs Kendall is not. So she's just eating the flesh, but she's not doing the nasty butchery. No, no, she's remaining a proper lady. Although she does eat a sailor's brains. <laughs> I mean, you know what the upper classes are like. She says that it is the most delicious thing that she has ever tasted. Does she say that? That quote comes from her husband's account. <laughs> okay, sure. As a not-so-fun aside, the sailor whose brains Mrs Kendall ate was an apprentice who had survived not one, not two, but three shipwrecks before the Francis Mary. Hmm. His luck had run out. Like, that's a lot of shipwrecks. Poor guy. Back to Anne Saunders. According to Captain Kendall, when the death of any company was announced, she would sharpen her knives, bleed the deceased in the neck, drink his blood and cut him up. That sounds very villainy, like she's just drinking the blood herself and not sharing it with anyone. That sounds, I don't know, inflated. Well, it appears that the bodies were butchered and then put overboard, as opposed to being stored on deck with Jane Moore, probably John, but no one actually writes it down. Jane Moore, who died the day after Wilson, so the 22nd, had his liver and heart eaten, and that's all that's recorded. Most of the flesh is being cast away? No one's going into too much detail, having much more fun villainising Anne Saunders, sort of launching herself at men with her knives. <laughs> but I did promise a love story. I was already finding this very romantic, but please, do add to it. James Fryer, Anne's betrothed, is not doing very well. Aww. He may even have been one of the survivors who were rendered, quote, foolish and were crawling on their hands around the deck. Is this due to, like, seawater-based delirium or just... A party game. No. <laughs> <laughs> they were classified as raving mad. I think seawater and being stuck in an unsteerable ship while your crewmates are resorting to cannibalism might do that. Maybe. Yeah, it probably doesn't help. In Anne's own words, she was watching him with whom I soon expected to be joined in wedlock expiring before her eyes. This is sounding less Bills and Boone and more quite sad, actually, Alex. What did you think was going to happen in a survival cannibalism love story? Maybe they both survived, I don't know. James Fryer would be the last man aboard the Francis Mary to die. Anne Saunders found herself reduced by hunger and thirst as to be driven to the horrid alternative to preserve her own life. Oh, oh. 
Like, I knew it was going to end like this, but I'm still sad. As soon as James Fryer died, a mate made moves towards the body to drain the blood from the corpse. Anne shrieked, throwing herself at the man and physically fighting him, pleading her claim to, quote, the greater portion of his precious blood as it oozed half congealed from the wounds inflicted upon his lifeless body. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say, like, praying that he doesn't eat him. But no, she's like, um, let me eat him. I'm the fiancé. I like that. She's she's sensible. She is. She claims that she has the greater right to James Fryer's blood and graciously allows the mate to drink one cup of Fryer's blood to her too. What's yours is mine and all that? Yeah, yeah. Now, in some versions, it says that James Fryer wasn't dead before Anne Saunders went to slit his throat and drink the still warm blood. Happy Valentine's Day! (laughs) This obviously isn't the version that Anne puts forward in her published narrative. Oh, that's surprising. Who'd have thought? Instead, she talks of the blood as being a bitter cup. Rescue does eventually come on the 7th of March. From 21 souls who had been aboard the Francis Mary, there are only six survivors. Mrs Kendall and Anne Saunders have both survived. Ah, there we go. Another case of women being better at surviving in a cannibalism situation. Yes. Yes. When the captain of HMS Blonde, Lord George Byron... Any relation to our good friend? Lord George Byron. (laughs) Cousins. Ah. Inherited the title. And according to Wikipedia, he was notable for being his predecessor's opposite in temperament and lifestyle. It's a very nice and tactful way of saying that he was basically a square. He's on his way back from doing some imperial branded science in the Pacific when he comes across the floundering Francis Mary. And does he just continue on past like all the others? No, he comes to their assistance. Ah, finally. Third time lucky. Yeah, it's fine, it's fine. Some people never get rescued. Honestly, they're very demanding, (laughs) Francis Mary. Lord Byron steps aboard and says, You have yet, I perceive, fresh meat. Oh, so it's all good. Yeah, he's going to be a bit disappointed when he's told, no, it is part of a man. Oh, he didn't realise. Oh, no. Yeah, he really is not like his cousin. And then Lord Byron and some of his crew have a little cry, which I think is quite a nice touch. Yeah, he's feeling some empathy. We've literally just been cackling about this. We can't all be as good and as noble-hearted as Lord George Byron. Would that we were. Indeed. Officially, everyone who died aboard the Francis Mary died of malnutrition, exposure, seawater, bad luck. But there's always the possibility and suspicion that maybe lots were cast. Maybe out-and-out murder did happen. The six survivors knew about it, but if it happened, no one was telling. Very sensible, unlike some other people I could name. (laughs) Mignonette. (laughs) Just keep your mouth shut. 
the six survivors are brought back to England on the HMS Blonde. The story of the Francis Mary is quite obscure, really. While it was published in the Globe and the British Traveller, and rescue by British Navy vessel gave her, you know, a bit of credence on the up and up. It wasn't just that she was discovered by some whaler, she was discovered by a British naval officer. By a lord. Despite this fame, she's not really discussed all that much, which is a bit odd considering the fact that both Captain Kendall and Anne Saunders write their own accounts. We love first-hand narratives of survival cannibalism cases. Anne Saunders's work is called The Narrative of the Sufferings and Shipwreck of Anne Saunders. Safe to say that she had both suffered and been shipwrecked. <laughs> yep, she tells it like it is. Surprising no one, the accounts differ a bit in the focus on Anne aboard ship. Kendall emphasises that Saunders was bloodthirsty and took an active role, while Saunders focuses on religious themes of virtue, faith and love. Ah, see, it is relevant to Valentine's Day. It is worth noting that Captain Kendall does call Saunders a heroine in his story. And it's very easy, both for us and the 19th century audience, to see Anne Saunders in this negative light, especially with the contrast to Mrs Kendall. Anne Saunders desperately wants to survive. She drinks the blood of her fiancé, which is a historical fact, I think is important to rebalance with her own voice. We don't normally get that, hmm. so I'm glad that we do. Anne writes that James's death and butchery was an abject moment of despair and that she was devastated that it was not within her power to afford him sustenance and that she felt herself forever weaned from all the vain enjoyments of this frail world after his death. Oh. I've not in fact been able to find out whether Anne Saunders ever married. Ultimately, in her account, the focus is on redeeming her actions and appealing to a higher authority. Captain Kendall refers to his wife as being much emaciated, a good-looking woman, which I think is a yet another unattainable standard for women's beauty. <laughs> God, why can't we all look like we've been shipwrecked and living off the corpses of our crew members for a month? The new diet just... <laughs> brains. <laughs> In contrast, Captain Kendall subtly accuses Anne of having a tough character, of not being submissive or sophisticated. I'm really liking Anne. She's sounding like a good, strong, independent female character in this story. Exactly. Which is why they don't like her in the 19th century, I guess. Yeah. I'm actually going to end on Captain Kendall's description of Anne Saunders, which I can't help but read as a compliment. Mm -hmm. Anne Saunders had more strength in her calamity than most of the men. Anne Saunders helped to keep six people, including herself, alive at sea. In these unthinkable circumstances, her fiancé, James Fryer, gave up his life and she subsisted off his remains. What did your significant other get you for Valentine's Day? 
So no Liverpool accents in that one then. I thought better of it on this occasion. We have had a little bit of feedback on the stunning quality of our accents. So we've decided to do a little something about it. We're going to play a fun game. I'll read the word cannibalism in some different languages, which I may not speak. And then Alex will try to guess what language I'm trying to use. This is going to go very well. It will diversify our audience and our reach. And we'll push Carmela's accents to the next level. <laughs> it's got Irish cannibalism. Cool, cool. Thank you, Alan. Um, right. Do I get that one as just a bonus? <laughs> yeah. What about cannibalismus? Italian? German. Oh. Cannibalies? French? Welsh. Welsh. Oh, do it again. Cannibalies. See, if you'd done it in okay. an accent, I'd have got it. Okay. Let me have some accents, please, Carmella. I can't do most of these accents. Ludo Dresdfo. Swedish? Um, actually, it was Croatian. <laughs> I'm sorry to God. our Croatian listeners. Embirovez? Latin? Hungarian. Probably not said like that. <laughs> we brought this on ourselves by saying that we were going to play fun games. Okay. I'm at zero out of five so far. Cannibalismo. Spanish. Yes! Yes! <laughs> I got one. There we go. I think that um, that's enough of that. We'll now. go out on a high. <laughs> um, Carmela, for Valentine's Day, I baked some cookies. Aww. Would you like a cookie either in the shape of a bone or in the shape of a person who has had his leg chopped off or bitten off? Depending on the quality of my cookie cutter. Why stop at one, you know? It gets a bit Moorish, doesn't it? <laughs> So we're going to take a quick snack break, but we will be back to talk about cannibalism in pop culture. Alex, would you like to talk about survival cannibalism in fiction? I would love to. We do need something to tide us over between our true life survival cannibalism cases after all. So first of all, I want to start out with a shout out to the book A Land So Wild by Alyssa Walkington, which both Alex and I have read and love. And Alyssa has been very kind about our podcast and has left us a review. Fascinating, meticulously researched and scandalously hilarious. Thank you, Alyssa. That's really kind. I'll take that. I like that. And because we are so appreciative and because we loved her book so much... We want all of you to read it. So head over to our Twitter at CastingLotsPod for a chance to win a copy of the book. Like, retweet, maybe throw in a comment or two and we will announce the winner of our second giveaway on the 1st of March. So get tweeting. So speaking of A Land So Wild and we're not going to spoil anything because after all we're going to give one of our lucky readers a copy 
But Carmela, how do you feel about the ties between cannibalism and romance? I mean, isn't it just so beautiful as a story? What's better than, you know, two shipmates of whatever situation you're in, going on a journey together, realising they're in love, and then there's also cannibalism. Personally, I think any story is improved with cannibalism. Now, as we've been researching for this podcast, there have been a few names that have been popping up time and again. In the non-fiction, most of this is cannibalism and common law. But in terms of fiction, I keep seeing one specific book that I literally cannot read. (laughs) This is a book called The Catamaran by Monica Kimichina. This is in Japanese and its full title is The Catamaran. Grief of the Three Men and Woman Drifting in the Pacific Ocean. The Ultimate Love Survival, Eroticism and Cannibalism. What is Soul Salvation? They have really crammed in the keywords to the title just to get that good Amazon SEO kind of thing. And I really want to read this. I've asked the internet to translate for me the blurb. And I've not read this yet. So, Carmela, Mm -hmm. would you like to hear the blurb of the erotic cannibalism story? (laughs) Yes, please. I love you from the bottom of my heart. With a man wearing a prosthesis working in a forensic classroom, my wife and a Japanese-Korean half-coroner, a woman with long hair there, The triangular relationship begins with the appearance of an up-and-coming film director who has fled from the Uyghur Autonomous Region. With a plastic surgeon who keeps giving mystery relevation, a hearing-impaired boy engaged in a sunken ship salvage trying to save his wife also joined. The world starts to move. This is my favourite quote. Sexual love movie filmed while crushing the corpse. (laughs) Oh no. Cannibalism as the pole of love at sea. That's also a good one. I don't need words anymore. I buried the dead words in my belly. Arthur Rambo, season of hell. Bali, where the gods live. Life after the incident at Tokyo Bay Yacht Harbour. A feast of love and sex that takes place in a forensic classroom. I don't know what is happening in this book, but I want to read it. I mean, is that Google Translate or is it just really that ridiculous? I think quite a lot of it is Google Translate. It started sounding like an Allen Ginsberg poem towards the end there, though. There was definitely some poetry vibes. I think some of it was quotation Sexual love movie filmed while crushing the corpse, cannibalism, as the pole of love at sea. I adore that. (laughs) So I can't give you any more information about that book, but it exists. I would like to read it and then probably bleach my eyes. (laughs) Carmella, 
I believe you have read some more sensible books. <laughs> I can't. I can't follow on from that, I'm afraid. Otherwise, I'm going to have to start talking about how in The Jonah Man by Henry Carlyle... We've already talked about it. <laughs> they insist that Captain Pollard had a sexual relationship with his aunt. See, we're drawing these connections between romance and cannibalism again. It's not just us. In fact, so many people do it, it's kind of weird. What is the name of that fantastic essay that we've read oh, regarding um, Herman Melville? L- Lovers of the Flesh? Lovers of Human Flesh, Homosexuality and Cannibalism in the Works of Herman Melville. Beautiful. I mean, the terror, we've discussed that extensively in our episode on the Franklin Expedition. So I think the terror is a very interesting contrast with Alanso Wilde, because both of them are based on the Franklin Expedition, Ish, Alanso Wilde is one of the rescue missions going after a fictional version of the Franklin Expedition. But in the terror, what we've got is gay romance, leading to the main gay couple being the evil cannibals, because evil gay villains who were cannibals, I guess. Whereas Alanso Wilde is far less homophobic. <laughs> that is what we want from our cannibalism media. As we say, equal opportunities. And we did cover this a bit in your Franklin episode, but I had some issues, more with the Terror TV show. I have to confess I've not read the book. But the connections were drawn between the evil, bad cannibals and the good, pure people who didn't want to be cannibals. For example, Good Sir, who I assumed, watching the show, that was a made-up name because, oh, you call the good guy Good Sir. But as we know, it was actually the name of the ship's assistant surgeon. Fun fact, Good Sir is actually one of the only expeditionaries who you can go and see. His body, at least 90% believed to be his body, was repatriated. It's down at the Old Royal Naval College in Greenwich. It is entombed within their Franklin Memorial. Technically, I think that he's the real villain of the piece. Mm. I think he's a bad sir. (laughs) In the TV show, not in real life, I'm making no aspersions on his actual character. He killed the monkey. There's a scene where he wants his camera to be carried and he doesn't care about the fact that he makes a sick man carry it. He... Guilt shames people for eating human bodies. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I just think that if you rewatch the terror and look past the fact that his name is Good Sir, <laughs> his actions have a detrimental consequence. Thank you for that, Alex. He's the real villain. I might have binge-watched all of the terror in less than 24 hours. (laughs) I'd also say the terror and Alanso Wild, also a contrast based on the Inuit racism. So the terror's quite... yikes. Whereas Alanso Wild seems to be carefully incorporating the importance of Inuit oral testimony in these stories. That is very fair, and we can see this influence or lack of 
with David E. Kutuk and the fact that all of these stories that we know about Martin Hartwell are from a white perspective. And I feel we can't mention oral testimony and not slide over to the fact that we do have an entire playlist on Spotify. It sort of counts as fiction. The Martin Hartwell story certainly is a fictitious rendition of that one. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult to talk about these songs and not quote them. More aptly, sing them. Go listen to our playlist. We'll post it on Twitter, but you can also find it on Spotify by searching for Casting Lots, but just not in the podcast section. Although do that as well. Definitely do that as well. Although if this is your first episode of Casting Lots, it's not normally quite like this. The first half was a pretty accurate picture. <laughs> um, should we talk about some other ones? Have you read Jamrak's Menagerie by Carol Birch? I think it's safe to say I've not read any of these. Oh, okay. Okay. This is this is quite a good one. So it's a very Dickensian sort of Ooh. pastiche, I would go as far as to say. About a young lad who gets employed to go with the collector of wild beasts and strange creatures. And the collector wants to go and fetch a Komodo dragon. Obviously. Obviously. So they go and fetch a Komodo dragon. It's very Welsh Essex. So they go to an island, they get the Komodo dragon. I mean, this is kind of spoilers because now we're halfway through the book, but you know what's coming because I've mentioned it already. <laughs> and obviously it doesn't go to plan. And what you end up with is some crew members in a kimono dragon in a boat. <laughs> this sounds a bit like The Life of Pi. The Life of Pi was going to be my other one that I mentioned. So, just to drag a friend of hers. <laughs> <laughs> the Life of Pi is about cannibalism because as it very subtly hints, the animals are actually people all along. And our dear friend Nerd did not realise that and was very, very distraught to find out that actually Pi was a cannibal. So I'm sorry if you missed the subtleties of that book. We can promise that we are not subtle about our cannibalism here at Casting Lots. And with that in mind, I've got moving from the realms of literature to film. Mm -hmm. There's a couple more that we can go for. There is the film Ravenous. Oh, yes. Which I'm not going to spoil too deeply because we may or may not be discussing its inspiration at a later date but it is inspired by a true frontier tale of american survival cannibalism and to round this off nicely and cheerfully there is always cannibal the musical <laughs> a musical about a cannibal. It's by the people that did South Park and the Book of Mormon. So you can bet that it's respectful and tasteful. <laughs> Everything about cannibalism is tasteful. Apart from that joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, I hope that you enjoy these recommendations for books and films to go away and experience with your significant other on your date night tonight. We will provide the full list of films, books and music recommendations 
not only for Valentine's Day, but to help you survive until the rescue ship of Casting Lots returns. That's right, guys, there will be a season two. If you thought our stories were niche and obscure before, you've heard nothing yet. <laughs> Follow us on social media at Casting Lots Pod or Casting Lots Podcast on Facebook for future announcements. And don't forget our Twitter giveaway to win a copy of Alanso Wild. Also, make sure to follow the hashtag Morbid Audio, where you can find out more about both us and our podcast network companions, the Grave History Podcast. If you like Morbid Audio, you'll like them too. We hope you've enjoyed this surprise extra helping of casting lots. Happy Valentine's Day to all our listeners, and hopefully you'll be hearing from us soon. Casting Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmella, with post-production and editing also by Carmella and Alex. Art and logo design by Riley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett. Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Oh, who thought cannibalism would be such an aphrodisiac? How long did it take you to script that one? <laughs> Not scripted. Not scripted. Yes. (laughs) I can't do that.